But anyway, let's begin this way. I, I, I'm a lover of hero stories. I think you know that. You know, I, I just, I loved Sunday school. There wasn't a lot of things I liked about Sunday school, but I loved the stories. I didn't like discipline very much, still don't. Um, but in Sunday school, there were great, great stories. But there are other stories. There are stories that are around us every day. Maybe you heard the story recently of uh, Eric Marcioni. Eric Marcioni lives in uh, uh, Montreal. One day as he's driving downtown Montreal, he sees a couple of police cars chasing a yellow car. It's obviously a police chase, but the chase is heading into an intersection where there are lots of people and lots of other cars. Danger is at hand. Marcioni decides he'll drive his SUV right in front of the yellow car and save the lives and health of other individuals. One minute, a no-name person, then next minute, a hero. And there's a girl by the name of Sarah Picard, 17 years old. She's in the parking lot in Vancouver, sees a man accosting a woman, runs over, beats the man off the woman, saves the woman's life. Later, the guy himself stabs himself to death with the knife with which he was going to kill the woman. Okay? Another person who rose in a moment becomes a hero. I like, I like the story of, of this person, Russell Fee. Russell Fee is camping in Banff National Park, and while he's there, there are some wild sounds taking place in the campsite next to him. In fact, what's happening is there is a wolf attack. A wolf is attacking the person in the next tent. Russell goes over, barehandedly gets rid of the wolf. That's courage. That's heroism. And what I want us to understand today, or what I want us to begin to see, is that God can take ordinary men and ordinary women, and in a moment, change their lives and the world around them for incredible things. Like I said before, I, I grew up on hero stories. I grew up with David and Goliath. I grew up with Jonathan climbing a cliff and then deciding to uh, put to, uh, to flight 20 Philistine men. I grew up with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego going into a fiery furnace. I grew up with Daniel in a lion's den. I grew up with, uh, you can name the stories, Joseph in prison and here and there, whatever. They were great stories, motivational stories. And uh, today I want us to take us to one of those biblical stories. Today's hero is a woman. And I've been wanting to preach on this woman for a long time. I can't remember the last time that I preached on this book or on this woman. Her name is Star or Myrtle, or as you know her, Esther. And she's going to rescue her people from what would seem to be annihilation. If you're a Jew, you understand this story. You read it every year at the Feast of Purim. You're reminded of how there was a point in time when it appeared that you as a Jew were going to be annihilated. But one man and one woman stood tall for God and things reversed. You know that story. You read it every year. If you're a Christian, you might read it once in a while. Some Christians probably have never read the story. And if you have read the story, 
Maybe you don't remember all the details. What I want to do this morning as I begin is to walk you through this story of Esther. Now, I have to tell you something. This story is a work of art, okay? If you are going to go to seminary and you're going to study Hebrew literature and somebody's going to just point you to the best Hebrew literature, pick any three books in the Old Testament for Hebrew literature of highest quality. Of course, somebody's going to say Isaiah. Yeah, put Isaiah on that list. You're going to put Amos on that list. Maybe Ruth. Definitely Esther will be on that list. It is just that good a book. Irony, parallelism, uh, reversal. I mean, it's an incredible story. And everything that happens in the story happens because of a literary mechanism. Now, don't get nervous. I'm not doing, going to teach a course on literary mechanism this morning, okay? That, we really don't want to do that. The story speaks for itself. The problem with the story is this. Uh, many of us come to the scripture and we're looking for uh, a little encouragement here or, or a little lesson there. The problem with the book of Esther is the whole book is the lesson. Okay? You can't go to the book of Esther and say, I think I'm going to find a verse today for spiritual enrichment in my life. You've got 10 full chapters, and if you explore all of those chapters, you might find two verses that would do that for you. And you probably have to twig them just a little to have them give you spiritual. You might, you might make a message on, well, if I perish, I perish. Remember, Esther's going to say that, right? Or you might make a, a little message on something for such a time as this. But once you get past those two texts, you're going to have a hard time doing something with the whole nature of this text. So I want to deal with the story. The story itself is a simple story, complex in how it's put together, simple, and I just want to walk us through that story if you allow me to do that. It begins with a party, right? It begins with a really, really big party. The party's been going for half a year already, for 180 days. The people of Persia have been partying, and now we're in a party, what should we call it, the acro party. The party upon the party. Okay, seven days more of incredible feasts, this taking place in the capital city of Susa at that particular point in time. During this party, at a point when the king is, what should we say, somewhat well lubricated, he comes up with a brilliant idea, and the brilliant idea is that he should bring his trophy wife out for all of the people in the country to see. That's what he wants. Everybody in Persia to see the beautiful woman that he has. The problem is Vashti, the beautiful woman, doesn't feel like being a sex object that day and refuses to come at the king's bidding. This presents a problem. One, I mean, how do you disobey the king to begin with? And two, the second problem is, if other wives begin to act like this wife, things could get really tough in Persia. And so the wise men, the seven wise men, sit down and try to determine what to do, and they come up with a solution to the problem, is this. 
You have to depose Vashti and we have to find a new queen. And so the search for the new queen begins. People are sent all over the country to look for new virgins so that the king can kind of look at them, check them out and do more than that actually. But at any rate, all of a sudden Esther, finds herself as one of these girls, finds herself in the king's presence, and ultimately finds herself in the king's palace. That's the beginning of the story. It's, it explains to us how Esther got in the palace, but then the writer of the book tells us three other things that are important. He tells us that one, she's a Jew. Okay? Two, he tells us that she was raised by a man by the name of Mordecai, who happens to be her cousin, obviously a lot older. Her father and her mother have died, and she is raised by him. He looks after her as if she were his own daughter. And then we're told something about Mordecai, and this doesn't seem to fit into the story. And what it is, is this, that Mordecai is at the, at the gates of the city, at the gates of the palace, and as he's at the gates of the palace, he overhears a conversation. What he overhears is a death threat for the king, an assassination plot. He reports that to Esther. Esther reports it to the, uh, to the appropriate people. They report it to the king, the plot is overcome, and then we're told that the king makes sure that this account is recorded in the annals, the chronicles. That's important. It doesn't fit any of the sequence of the things that have gone before, but this event has been entered into the annals of the, of the kingship. Our attention now turns to something else. It turns to a man by the name of Haman. The more you know him, the less you like him. Okay, I mean, that's, that's what it really boils down to, right? He's an interesting man, he's very powerful, okay? He's important. He is the second ranking individual in Persia. And he's devious. And now all of a sudden we're told about a tension that exists between Haman and Mordecai. You see, Haman is so important that the king has more or less made an edict that when you are in his presence, you need to bow or you need to stand, you need to show that you honor him. But Mordecai refuses to do this. Day after day, Haman comes to the palace, Mordecai does absolutely nothing. He sits, and the more he sits, the more angry Haman becomes. And the more angry Haman becomes, the more he decides he's gonna do something about the situation. In fact, his anger keeps growing and growing and growing. His anger grows to the place where he figures out that he will not only remove Haman, but he will remo uh, remove Mordecai, but he'll remove all of Mordecai's people as well. The hatred for one Jew becomes the hatred for all Jews. Being the devious man that he is, he comes up with a little scheme. He'll go to the king and say, you know, king, we, we have a problem in Persia. There's a group of people 
They don't exactly obey our laws and they don't really mix with our people. They're kind of vermin. They are kind of, what should we say, parasites on our society. And I'll tell you what, I'll give you 10,000 shekels of silver and I'll eliminate them all for you. We as a country won't have laws to think. Talk about genocide, right? Okay. King says, sounds good to me, keep the money. Get rid of the problem. Now Mordecai seems to have this incredible ability finding out about plots. Mordecai hears about this particular plan about the destruction of the Jews and he goes to Esther and explains to Esther that this is what's going to happen to the Jewish people. I mean, actually the dialogue takes place through intermediaries because Mordecai can't exactly get into the palace and she can't exactly get out of the palace, but the conversation is taking place. What is she going to do? Okay. Now you have to remember that as soon as Haman comes up with this plot, you gotta be remembering you were told Esther is a Jew. Okay. His plot not only is gonna kill Jews, it ultimately is going to come to the place where it'll kill the queen as well. That's a problem. That's a real problem. What's Esther going to do? Well, you know the story. You know what she's going to do. I mean, she needs to go and speak to the king, but you can't just go speak to the king. Okay? To go and speak to the king without being invited means death. That's why she says, if I perish, I perish. I'm gonna to go to the king. I don't know what he's gonna do. And so she enters the hallway where the king is seated. And fortunately for her, the king extends the golden scepter. She touches the end of it and he says, now Esther, what can I do for you? Esther says, I'd like you to come to a banquet that I'm gonna have this evening. There are banquets everywhere in the book of Esther. They're banqueting all the time. I'd like you to come to a banquet. I'd like you and Haman to come to the banquet that I will hold for you this evening. So they do. I mean, you can just imagine uh, in this situation, Haman's thinking like, good grief, how good can it get, right? You're, you're eating and drinking with the king and the queen. There's not a better situation for you to have. And he's all excited about going there. He goes there and, and the king says, Esther, what's your request? And she says, oh, my request is that maybe you and Haman could come back for another banquet tomorrow evening. Love to. But then Haman has to make his way home. In order to make his way home, he has to get by that Jew sitting at the city gates. It's just annoying him. No, it's just eating at him inside. He goes home, he talks with his wife, Zeresh, and, and, and his friends, and he says, I just hate this person that's driving me nuts. I hate him. I can't wait till he's dead. And they essentially say, well, why don't you just kill him? Here's the plan. Why don't you just build a gallows or a pole? I mean, there's differences how people think he actually got killed. And hang him on a gallows. Great idea. 
Now, I told you before that the writer of this book is incredibly keen. At the same time that Haman is making plans on how to kill Mordecai, the king has insomnia. Now, what do you do when you can't sleep? You read a history book, right? You bore yourself to death or something like that. Well, that's what he does. He asks for those annals to be brought out. And as he's reading the annals, all of a sudden, he remembers. It's there. Mordecai saved his life. He begins wondering, what on earth has happened to Mordecai? Has anybody rewarded him for this? Has anybody given him anything for this? And the answer is, doesn't look like it. Haman, in the morning, comes back to the palace. He's just ready, got the plan, Mordecai's gonna die. As he walks in, the king asks his servants, is there anybody in the courts that I could speak to about something? And they say, oh, Haman just walked in. He said, great, let's talk to Haman. And he said, Haman, I got a question for you today. And Haman's like, whoa, you know, what could be done? What should be done for someone that the king wants to honor? And, and and Haman is such an egomaniac, he can't think that the king would want to honor anybody more than him. He said, I got a great plan. You know, why not? If you think it's for you, go for broke, right? Here's, here's the plan. We're going to get one of the king's horses, one that the king's ridden on, actually. And on that horse, we make sure we hang the medallion so everybody knows that this horse is from the king's stable. And then we're going to put that person on the horse, and he's going to wear one of the robes that the king has worn. And somebody is going to go before this, going to lead this horse through the city with this rider and proclaim before him, this is what the king does for those he wants to honor. Cayman says, Haman, that is a great plan, a really great plan. I want you to do that for Mordecai. Talk about reversal. That's the literary mechanism happening. Boom, whoa. He does it, goes home, talks with his wife. I'm glad I'm not married to her. She says, you know what? You've begun to fall before Mordecai. You're a dead man. And she doesn't put it that way, but essentially, that's what happens. But he's got a dinner to go to that night. Okay. He's got to go back to the palace. And there he's going to have dinner with Esther and the king. And the king once again asks, Esther, what is it? that I can do for you. What, what can I do for you? I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. She says, here's what I want. Save my life. I want you to save my life. I want you to save my people's life because my people have been assigned to destruction and annihilation. And the king asks, who did this? Who did this? This wicked Haman. 
Haman knows that he's in deep, deep trouble. This king has a short temper, by the way. Often in the book of Esther, you'll find the king's anger, his fury arose. He's really mad now. And he's going to be even more angry in a couple of minutes. He goes out on the portico to try to think about what he's going to do. And while he's out in the portico thinking what he's trying to do, Haman is in there begging Esther for his life. He is, somehow he trips and he falls onto Esther's couch. And there he is where he shouldn't be. And the king walks in at just that time. You know the rest of the story. Haman will be executed on the gallows that he prepared for Mordecai. If you know the full story, Mordecai will become the man in the kingdom that actually takes Haman's place. And on the day that the Jews were supposed to be destroyed, the enemies of the Jews will be destroyed. Wow, what a story, right? I mean, it just, boom, boom, boom. You're, you're just being pulled by all of these literary mechanisms to see these incredible points. And then all of a sudden, a question comes to your mind. You know, how did this story ever get in the Bible? I mean, this is a purely secular story, right? I sure looks secular. As I said before, you read your way through the whole book and you're looking for something spiritual. There's only two verses that even point you in that direction. And you've got to work hard to make them do it. I mean, when I say it's secular, think of this. There's not one mention of prayer in this book. There's not one mention of the temple in this book. There is not even one mention of God in this book. What there is is sensuality and sexuality everywhere. Drinking without limit, it seems, partying, scheming, plotting, ethnic hatred, revenge, it's all right there. And so you ask yourself, like, where's the spirituality in the midst of this? What we want to ask ourselves this morning is like, is our society really all that much different? Hey, maybe not. I mean, clearly God's not a big part of our society. Church isn't a big part of our society anymore. Prayer is not a big part of our society anymore. Partying is a really big part of Canadian society, right? Partying, drinking, all sorts of interesting, I don't know if you could say plots, but schemes taking place. It's all the same. Esther's world and, and our world really aren't all that different. You talk about revenge. Hmm. We're ripping down statues, burning down churches. It's all happening. 
right here and now. The book of Esther had a hard time being accepted into the biblical canon. It's what we call an anti-legomena. It's a book that was spoken against. Spoken against because of the things that I've just spoken about, the secularity of the book. It, it looks like it's secular to the core, but maybe it's not secular to the very core. Okay. Maybe not. Because at some point you have to ask yourself, Are chance and chaos really in control of all this stuff that's going on? Okay. I mean, is it just by chance that Vashti has a bad hair day and tells the king, get lost, I'm not coming? Is it just by chance that an unknown Jewish girl ends up in the king's palace? Is it just by chance that, that Mordecai sitting at the city gates overhears an assassination plot for the king? Is it just by chance that Haman walks in just when the king wants to reward Mordecai? Is it just by chance that the king can't sleep and therefore reads the history? And, and is it just by chance that he reads not just history, but that little historical bit about how Mordecai had saved his life? Is it just by chance that Haman falls on Esther's couch? There's no chance that it's just by chance. Okay. And that begins to lead us to the spiritual truths that actually are contained in this book. They're not contained there verse by verse. They are contained there as being overriding themes to everything that is said in this book. They are the spiritual truths that make this book flow. The first of which is this. It's not chance, it's not chaos, it's God's spiritual lesson. Number one is this, God's in control. It's God who gets Esther into that palace. It is God who has Mordecai in the right place to hear about a plot. It is God who makes Vashti say, yeah, I don't think today, not so, not doing that. It is God, it is God, it is God, it is God. He is everywhere in this situation. And what you understand, in, in the midst of change, in, in the midst of chaos, in the midst of, well, new normals, and that we're talking about all the time now, the new normal. I wonder when the new normal is actually going to become constant. We're not there yet, for sure. In the midst of COVID, in the midst of sexual upheaval, in the midst of financial revolution, in the midst of social unrest, there is a constant, it is spelled out clearly in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6. I am the Lord, I do not change. Okay. That's important. Okay. It's what Nebuchadnezzar says. 
Remember after Nebuchadnezzar has his little experience with God, he says, now I praise and extol the God of heaven. He moves among the armies of heaven and earth. No one can stay his hand or say unto him, what are you doing? God is in control. This is a continual story in the Old Testament, right? It's the story of Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why not? Because you are with me. A New Testament version might be something like this. It's Jesus when he's in the boat with the disciples. You remember that? The disciples are, you know, Jesus is sleeping and the disciples are freaking out. They're like, don't you care about us? You're just sitting there in the back of the boat sleeping. Don't you care about us? Can't you see that we're going to perish? When in point of fact, as long as Jesus is in the boat, they're as safe as they can ever be. And that's what this story is all about. It's, it's kind of saying like, listen to this. Jesus is in the boat. Relax. It's saying that God is present with you. Relax. God has it under control. And that's spiritual lesson number one. I don't know about you, I need that lesson a lot because I'm one of those persons who wants to take control all the time. So I'm one of those persons who needs to back up and say, you know what? God's got a way better plan for this deal than I ever had. He can do a way better job. Besides that, he's a lot more powerful and a lot of other reasons. But our pride, of course, makes us challenge this principle over and over. We need to come to a place where we say, like, God is in control. We're in a society, we don't know what's going on. God's in control. God knows exactly what's going on. As a second spiritual lesson. I mean, one of the things we've spoken about so far is theologically, if you were studying in seminary, we'd be talking about the hiddenness of God. He's hidden. He's there. I mean, I like the way Carl Jung, the psychiatrist, put it, or psychologist. Bidden or not, he is here. He is present, right? That's hidden until you start asking the question, where's God? Where's God? Where's God? He's everywhere. And then you start thinking about, well, what about... Esther and Mordecai. I mean, Esther is a strikingly beautiful woman. That's not exactly what the text says. It doesn't say it that way. I think it says that she is lovely in form and beauty. She is one good-looking girl. Okay. And Mordecai? Hey. He's, he's incredible. He's, he's gifted at management. He's gifted at a lot of things. But you have to understand something. In this book, they're foreigners. They live in a strange country. They have no power. They, they have no prestige. They don't really have anything going for them. But there's one thing that's working in the background of their lives, which the author only allows you to get a little glimpse of. It's when Mordecai goes to Esther and he said, now Esther, listen, 
we have a problem here. And you got to do something about that problem. But as he continues, he says, but if you choose not to do it, you need to understand God is going to do it, but you and your family aren't going to enjoy the blessing of that rescue at all. There's a spirituality in this man, Mordecai. And there's a spirituality in this young woman who says, even if it costs me my life, I'm going to sacrifice it for God's people. Okay? And all of a sudden you see that, that two individuals who are willing to stand up in the midst of a pagan society, God comes alongside them and does phenomenal things through, through them. One moment, aliens. The next moment, after they've chosen to stand for God, heroes who change history, who change their nation. We're told by biblical scholars that this Esther story is actually modeled on the Joseph story. I'm not going to go into that this morning, but it's probably true. They look a lot alike. Okay? People who have no status in the land and all of a sudden, God through crazy circumstances rises Joseph to the top. Okay? It's the story of Nehemiah as well. It's the story of Daniel. It's, it's a biblical story. It's a story that could be your story. It could be my story. It's a story that reminds us of Second Chronicles 16, 9, where God says to Asa this, the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro through all the earth, seeking for a righteous person whom God can fully support. And what I want us to begin thinking about today is that we are not helpless in our society. We sit here watching our society slide spiritually. We are not helpless, and God is looking for men and women who will stand up and say, I'm going to be God's person in that setting. That's spiritual lesson number two. God raises up heroes. Spiritual lesson number three, God keeps promises. Here's the promise. The promise that God keeps in the book of Esther is a 1,500-year-old promise. 1,500 years old. Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, the first statement of the Abrahamic covenant. I'm going to make you into a great nation. I am going to give you this land. You're going to be a blessing to the earth. The one who blesses you, I will bless. And the one who curses you, I will curse. Does the name Haman sound familiar here? Cursing and ultimately cursed. God keeps his promises. 
God is present with us. God can empower us. God keeps his promises. And, and one more thing is, you have to understand, God really is in control. God does, he finishes business, okay? He finishes business. There's another story. See, the writer of Esther likes these stories that are just always beneath the surface. If you're Jewish, they're easier to see. If you're not Jewish, a little bit harder. But when you first meet Mordecai, you get just the slightest introduction to him. That he's from the tribe of Benjamin. And that one of his ancestors is a man by the name of Kish. Hmm. Do I know any other Benjamite who is a descendant of Kish? The answer is you do, but maybe you don't know it. And that would be King Saul, the first king of Israel. Who cares about that? You wouldn't care about it unless you come to the little genealogical reference dealing with Haman. When we are told that he is an Agagite. And now things begin to make sense. There's a time way back in the book, Samuel, when Saul has a responsibility, God goes to him and says, you need to eliminate these Amalekites. Their king is a king by the name of Agag. You remember that, that Saul doesn't do that. Heaps the number. You're supposed to eliminate everything: the sheep, the goats, the cows, everything. He does. He keeps the good stuff for God. This sin is so sneaky and so bad that ultimately he will lose his kingship for disobedience. And here we are, six hundred years later. At least six hundred years later the descendant of Saul, the descendant of Agag. God finishes business. So what's that mean for my life and for your life? Just three simple things. Okay? And then you find that this book of Esther is, is a pretty powerful spiritual book. First, it reminds us never to focus on the surface. We don't need to focus on the surface. God is always in control. It doesn't make, it doesn't make any difference if it looks like chaos. It doesn't make any difference if it looks everything is happening by chance. The biblical fact is God is in control. The second thing is, that that God who is in control is a certain kind of God. He's a God who keeps promises. And he's a God who doesn't start a project and not finish it. He finishes what he does. He is absolutely reliable. You can bank on him. 
Do you ever have those days when somehow a hymn or a chorus or something pops into your mind and you, and you can't get it out? I had one of those days this morning. I, I can't remember the last time I sang the old hymn, Standing on the Promises of God, but somehow it came into my mind, and I suppose it has to do with this message because that's what I'm talking about here. God makes a promise. God keeps a promise. He makes it. He finishes it. He's trustworthy. And the third thing this book reminds us about is that God can take ordinary people. Ordinary people like you and me. Ordinary people who are willing to say at some point there, God, I'm your man, I'm your women. God, I will stand, I will not cower. God, I'm in. That God can come alongside that person and change not just the circumstances of their life, but the circumstances around them. That's what I want you to understand today. God is able to do far more than we can ever ask or imagine. He's incredible. He uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. I want to encourage you today to read this book of Esther over again and see just how God is at work everywhere. I want you to see just how God is, is a promise keeper. I want you to see just how God finishes what he begins, and I want you to see just how God can take individuals who commit themselves fully to him and make them game changers in the most secular of environments. If ever there was a time that Canada needed biblical, solid Christians, today is that day. Today is that day. And you have to decide, how am I going to live? And maybe today, God will give you the courage to say with Esther, if I perish, I perish. But I'm in. I'm in. Let's pray together. Mm -hmm.